This is a Suno India production and you are listening to Beyond Charminar. Hello everyone thank you all for joining on another episode of Beyond Charminar so in fact this particular episode is actually going to be a lot about our language and a little more in detail about dakhni or hyderabadi so the thing is over the last few weeks i have been reading a lot of uh, i guess social media posts and also articles like for example about 4 5 days ago there was an article written in dawn.com from pakistan uh with the headline saying how to speak in hyderabadi so you know the typical problem that concerns hyderabad and i believe the deccan when i say the deccan i'm referring to uh, telangana andhra parts of maharashtra northern karnataka and uh, basically the entire telugu speaking area as well the thing is let's let's take hyderabad all of us hyderabadis for most part speak in uh, a language that we don't necessarily write in especially the language that we speak in hyderabad is called dakhni most people don't know in fact um, in a previous episode last year i be interviewed sajjad shahid about this so today we have with us karthik karthik malli from bangalore who is uh, a linguistic researcher and uh, well he's also written about uh, dakhni and other things as well so like me he is also a heritage enthusiast and uh, somebody who loves deccan history i believe from whatever i can see so karthik in fact has done a lot of research and has also written about dakhni so just for those of you who don't know about what dakhni is i will tell you so if all of you are on instagram you would be familiar with the work of danish seth the artist who has also what is that movie he made yeah karthik uh, he's made a few humble politician yeah, humble. nagraj yeah so that is what um, i particularly like but danish said's videos typically the ones during lockdown those were especially the ones where he speaks in what people refer to as bangalore urdu is actually also in dakhni you know words like hame tumhe kaiko nako these are all the language of dakhni that we all speak in in hyderabad bangalore or other parts of the dakhni essentially a mix of persian hindus or i would say dehelvi i believe from the 14th century and kannada marathi and telugu dakhni changes from region to region and why most of us don't know what it is like for example take hyderabad we know urdu we write and read in urdu but we don't actually speak in urdu we actually speak in dakhni lot of the words in everyday usage do not find place in urdu standard urdu language so i'm going to ask karthik to speak and elaborate Karthik thank you for joining Suno India and Beyond Charminar so can you please start off by giving everyone a little idea of what dakhni is and what the language essentially is and you know uh, where it stands today yeah sure yunus first off uh, thanks for having me here i'm glad to speak about dakhni and um, yeah um, what you said i think sums it up that it's a spoken variety that is spoken mostly in the deccan uh, it's a spoken language variety that's spoken in the deccan and um, it is not usually written by its speakers and people who speak it usually consider it a form of urdu and you know but then um, uh, something that i've emphasized in my research is that it's had its own history and it's had its own evolution in the deccan so it's a product of um, you know the deccan's own culture the deccan's history 
So how do I put it? It doesn't mean to ignore Dakni is to ignore the Deccan's own history. And increasingly, uh, you know, especially now that history is becoming more and more important for like political reasons, it's important that we recognize the role Dakni has played in the Deccan's history. So we'll see. I've explained this to people uh, quite a few times in the past. So would you want to maybe explain to people how Dakni came about as a language? Sure, Yunus. Um, so since the language's own history is so tied to the political history of the region, you can't really separate the two, right? And um, I mean, I'm sure all of us are familiar with Mohammed bin Tughlaq's famous transfer of, you know, the capital from Delhi to Daulatabad, you know, which was like uh, more than 1,000 kilometers away in what is now Maharashtra. And uh, it was the capital of the recently defeated Yadava kings of um, the Marathi-speaking region. And, um, you know, this was when at least the Delhi Sultanate had conquered the Deccan for the first time, right? Um, so after consolidating its own rule, its own presence in North India, they started expanding outwards. So like Gujarat and... Uh, and this would be for the 14th century. Uh, this is like the late... Um, this is the late uh, late 1200s and early 1300s. Yeah, so, yeah, actually quite early on. And what happens is under the Khiljis, um, you know, the empire starts expanding. They conquer Bengal, they conquer Gujarat, and, you know, like even in North India, they expand their reach. And what happens is uh, they, you know, Alauddin Khilji himself uh, defeats the Yadavas, right? He gains control over their kingdom, which is in peninsular India. And uh, for the first time, at least the Delhi Sultanate's rule extends beyond its North Indian core. It's spread into East India, but also like increasingly towards South India, right? And uh, under the Tughlaqs, this expansion continued and like, you know, they, they reached all the way to like Madurai and like... They reached uh, all the way to Madurai also. Yeah, so uh, the Tughlaq armies conquered three of the southern kingdoms. The Kakatiyas of Warangal, the Pandyas of Madre and the um, Hoysalas of Dwara Samudra, which is now Halebidu. So, so what is Dwara Samudra today? Halebidu. It's near uh, Mysore. Ah, oh, okay. Belur Halebidu. Right. So, uh, so yes. Um, after Tughlaq, you know, conquered this, um, you know, previously untouched by Delhi, you know, like this huge expanse of land in the Deccan. Um, he, he needed to consolidate his rule over it. So, um, he felt Daulatabad would be like a good, um, it would make for a good capital, right? I just wanted to ask a small thing. So from my understanding, uh, what I've also read in conjunction with whatever you've been saying, uh, essentially, can we, can I sum it up? I mean, if I have to tell somebody in three lines, can I say that Tughlaq essentially thought that he would be able to control the entire country better from the middle east rather than there's a north yeah absolutely was that what it is in in that sense yes i think um, as far as we can tell this seems to be his uh, primary motive you know to like center his power in a different uh, i mean yeah in the you know in the in the center of his realm now expanded realm right and um, but then he was also sort of uh, uh, radical the way he did it like he just like forced a huge chunk of the city's population to leave Earlier, it was believed that, you know, the entire city of Delhi moved out, but I mean, was forced to move out. But um, today we know that it was only a certain um, elite. It was not the whole city. 
could you also maybe before we get into this tell us also uh, when tugluk was in power right uh, around the time when he changed his capital and stuff what was the status of because at that point of time there was no language called urdu right yeah. at that point of time yeah. so could you maybe could you maybe just tell us what was forming in delhi or north india or in tugluk's own capital uh, before it came down to to the south yeah sure so one thing is um, at the time this was around the time vernacular languages as we call them were still emerging as literary languages right um, okay. across much of india like in south india this process had already started but elsewhere it was just beginning to happen right so um, okay why i say this is because the idea of having a distinct linguistic identity is also very um it's very intimately tied to having a literature right so i mean obviously people in delhi spoke a language i mean that much is evident but the thing is since they didn't compose literature in it and since we don't really have those records right there's no identity that we can give them in the sense we can't say like we can't really give it a name that would have been uh used by themselves right so we can give them labels we can say yeah like this was the early speech of delhi or this was like old hindi or something none of these these are all modern terms that we are creating as uh, convenient labels this is not how delhi's speakers would have identified yeah so but uh, generally speaking we can say like there was um you know there was a language that was the ancestor of hindi and urdu but like for for uh, convenience sake let's just call it uh, old delhi hindi right or old telavi right if that works and old telavi yeah, right that uh, would probably be the most convenient i mean it would be an unformed language at that i mean it was not a fully formed language at that point of time right in the 14th century so it was not a literary language but i mean it is not just me saying this but if you compare like any language with its uh form from like you know with, with its written form from around that era you'll still find a lot of similarity for example even with english if you look at english and in, uh, around that time you'll still see a lot of similarities so we can we can safely assume that uh, it was the case for old delavi as well you know like it would have one like a striking resemblance to like what is spoken today in delhi like apart from the literary forms uh you know like uh, like we're talking about like day to day language and yeah um uh, obviously back then the persian influence had not seeped in but on a on a very basic level so um, but then like mm. since the delhi sultanate itself did not use this language for anything it was not it didn't have any patronage it was just spoken by the average person right could we say that uh, it was a spoken language of common people absolutely yes undoubtedly okay so uh, when when tughlaq um, like you know moved his power base to daulatabad as we just um, touched upon he sent all these people Mm-hmm. He forced them to move to Daulatabad, and with them they carried their speech, right? And what happened was in right. Daulatabad, which was in the heart of the Marathi-speaking region, which was also forming around the same time. But then uh, Marathi right. had started its literary journey a few centuries earlier, so there was already a, an emerging literature in Marathi. So, um, like the oldest works of Marathi literature, like the Nyaneshwari and stuff, are dated to like the um, late Yadava period. So. basically just very very just like maybe a century before khilji's own conquest of daulatabad he was saying 14th century he shifted his capital from delhi to or daulatabad yeah. then what is aurangabad today no uh, they're both different like aurangabad is very close i mean daulatabad is close to aurangabad but they're different cities okay 
Okay, okay, right. okay. So, correct. So then, so what happened was uh, the speech of Delhi was now transplanted to the Deccan, right in the heart of this. And also, I mean, uh, people there already spoke Marathi, so now you have this other linguistic element. Obviously, it was a very small element. It was only spoken in Daulatabad, which was it was just like a fort, right? So only in that city people spoke this, but you know the presence was established. And um, this community, like, it grew on its own. So even after uh, Tughlaq moved the capital back, there remained some people because it was a Tughlaq ruled city. So the elites and the nobles and stuff were still basically, um, you know, like from. Um, in, in fact, many of them were from the Kilji period. So there was this um, almost like a sense, like uh, in a sense, an outpost of Delhi's culture in Daulatabad in the Deccan, and um, with the political power, with everything else. There was also the language, and at the time it was a small community. But um, what happens is much later when um, Timur invades India, right? He invades Delhi uh, a few decades later, and uh, it causes such uh, a wave of fear, a wave of terror, in fact, in North India because um, okay. at the time the military elite of the Delhi Sultanate was still from Central Asia primarily. And uh, these regions had been ravaged by Timur's forces, right? And the, so there was this sense of doom that, you know, he would come and, like, you know, just destroy the city, which he did. Like, he sacked Delhi and he completely destroyed it. Uh, and, like, yeah. But what happens is uh, a bunch of people, in fact, moved from Delhi to Daulatabad to escape from him, to escape from Timur. Okay. And this, oh, okay. yeah, and this increases the North Indian base in Daulatabad. So all of a sudden, now you have oh. more people from Delhi who are again speaking the same language, who carry these same cultural ideas and political ideas, who've been, you know, who've established themselves in Daulatabad. Right, got it. Okay. And this creates like a second wave of, I mean, you know, like Delhi's linguistic um, influence, right? And uh, what happens is Delhi finds itself unable to retain control over the Deccan because Daulatabad is thousands of kilometers away. And what happens is they lose control of the region and local nobles in Daulatabad declare independence. And they establish their own kingdom, which becomes the Bahamani Sultanate. Right. So essentially, Tughlaq shifts his capital you know, back to Daulatabad and then back to Delhi and stuff. Right. 1347 is when, if I'm not wrong, uh, I think it's an internal revolt leads to the Bahamani Empire, yeah. right? if I'm not yeah. wrong, with the capital at Gulbarga. So first, it was at um, Daulatabad. So, uh, in fact, the coronation of the first sultan was in Daulatabad, and you know, like that was their initial oh, capital. Okay. But then it was um, right. relatively like to the north, right? So um, it was not far south enough. So they moved it to Gulbarga, ah, which was okay. it was a major city under the Kalyani Chalukyas, who were a dynasty in that region. So they move it to Gulbarga, and that becomes their new capital. And like. Um, um, I think around uh, less than a century later, they move it to Bidar, which they found as a new city. But even at Golbarga, I, I don't think the language had evolved fully, right? Even at the, after the 1347 under the Bahmani Empire as well. So to clarify, by evolution, if you mean literary form, then no, it had not developed a literary form as of yet. Uh, it was spoken by people and uh, obviously, like, you also have to keep in account the social character of, um, you know, Bahamani society at the time, uh, the masses, like we're talking about the uh, the vast majority of people, the masses, the Deccan inhabitants who 
who spoke uh, Telugu, um, Marathi, Kannada, like you know, older forms of these languages. But yeah, these these languages, right? Uh, but at the same time, the elite, the ruling elite, the military elite, so they would have used Persian for cultural purposes, but they would have also spoken the language of Delhi as a community language. Again, since we don't have written records, we can only piece this together through observations and you know, like just making assumptions, right? So we can't say for certain how many people spoke it, and it's very likely that at the time Dakni was, uh, or rather, like um, the speech of Delhi uh, that was spoken in the Deccan was limited to a very, very minuscule minority. It was only spoken by, let's say, the um, elites and cities, and uh, at the time, um, Bahmani control would have just been limited to like a few cities. Right. But then what happens is over the centuries, as this political power um, entrenches itself in the Deccan, another interesting point is as people convert to Islam in the region, as they become Muslims, let's say, what happens is there is also a sense of cultural and linguistic shift. So to become a Muslim is not just to like change your religion, but it's also to like, um, I mean, at the time, it's it, it also involved like changing, um, you know, like ideas, like cultural ideas and, you know, like uh, conforming to a different set of values and ideas. And that involved shift of language as well. So this would have been gradual. Like, of course, it wouldn't have happened overnight. We're talking about many centuries, right? Uh, and over this time, like the Bahmani is split into like the five Deccan Sultanates. But also uh, uh, what's very important here is because a lot of these new Dakni, uh, you know, again, like, uh, let's just call it Dakni now because it's established in the Deccan. A lot of these old Dakni speakers, what happened was since they were originally speaking other languages, right? And even the other old Dakni speakers, since they were living with these languages around them, they started absorbing uh, influences from them. So uh, a lot of, if you look at the grammar of Dakni today, you see like a lot of influence from the Dravidian languages, right? And this comes from this language contact. It's basically uh, the speech of Delhi. It, it doesn't remain untouched, right? The speech of Delhi keeps interacting with, I mean, this old Dehlavi keeps interacting with the local Dravidian languages. And these Dravidian languages uh, exert a certain influence on you know, this old Dehlavi, which starts taking on Dravidian characteristics. Like we're talking about vocabulary, pronunciation, grammar, syntax, like all these, uh, I mean, if you look at it in a ling- uh, from a linguistic perspective, you can usually discern like many of these linguistic influences. Uh, in, in fact, it's uh, it's still being studied and frankly, it's not been studied enough. But but yeah, it's it's uh, it's very evident on every level. In fact, like I used to say, like I've told a few people this, it's sort of an exaggeration, but if you look at any, uh, if you take any phrase or like expression, not expression, but like sentence construction that's used today in Hyderabad, let's say, and if you translate it word for word into a Dravidian language, it'll actually make perfect sense. For example, uh, I've heard, I've heard um, uh, in Hyderabad, I've heard ek panch minute. So, um, you know, uh, I, I'm sure like no one would talk that way in Bombay or Delhi, right? But if you if you speak, um, you know, like Tamil or like Kannada, it's, it's you know, you'd say like Wandu Aidu Nimsha in Kannada, which is it's the same thing, like, but no one would say ek panch minute in Delhi. So, you know, this is from Dravidian languages. And then you have, uh, you also have the echo construction as it's called. Okay. If you look at Tamil, if you look at um, Kannada, they, they all work the same way, even Telugu. Like. So this is again, like um, something that's come from its language contact with um, Dravidian languages. So 
So the, like, if you look at each each and every level of Dakni, you will see influences. Like you will see the mark of local languages, right? And by local, I mean you know like the Dravidian languages of. Yeah, you're talking about South Indian Dravidian languages. Yes, and even Marathi, for that matter, is already heavily influenced by um, by Dravidian because it also arose in the same like the same region. I was told that Marathi also has a lot of Persian words, or, or the origins of it goes back to Persian. Was that is that true? Um, so Marathi does have Persian words that have come through again, like uh, centuries of um, Deccan Sultanate rule primarily, but um, it is not descended from Persian. It, it descends from old Indo-Aryan, just like you know any other Indo-Aryan language. Like you know, Marathi has Marathi has a bunch of Persian words, like many Persian words. This is a product of again like centuries of Deccan Sultanate rule, and the the, uh, the Deccan Sultans use Persian as uh, their administrative language, right? But um, beyond that, the language itself does not um, descend from Persian. It is an Indo-Aryan language, just like Hindi or Bengali or you know, um, Gujarati or Punjabi. It it, it um, derives from old Indo-Aryan. Okay, so well, so I'm just going to sum it up again for anyone who has lost track. Basically, you have uh, you have Persian mixing with local languages in Delhi. Uh, and the 14th century, you have, we have Muhammad bin Tughlaq, who basically decides to shift his capital from Delhi to Dawlatabad, which is close to Aurangabad today. Uh, and in that shifting, well, the, there are a lot of reasons, of course, but uh, I would say that one of the main reasons was for him to essentially keep control of his entire region. So uh, just for people who don't know, Tughlaq had what we can say was one of the largest uh, areas in terms of uh, geography of what is today India. Uh, so the idea to shift his capital from Delhi to Dawlatabad was particularly to have effective control of his cap of his country. Uh, and yeah, that is 14th century, and uh, however, that does not work. And he also shifts back. And uh, in the 14th century, 1347 is when you have uh, the you have a re internal revolt in Tughlaq's uh, empire, because that which essentially leads to the creation of something called the Bahamani Empire. So, yes, and the coronation is done, uh, as Karthik said, it was at uh, Dawlatabad, and then later the capital was shifted to Gulbarga, right? Yes, yes. So, we have Khwaja Bandha Nawaz's uh, Darga in Gulbarga, which is a right. very famous place, right? So, yeah, Khwaja Bandha Nawaz, so apparently was a descendant of uh, Nizamuddin Aulia, is that correct? Um, How do you put it? The Silsila, the Sufi Silsila, not a... Okay. Not, a, not a direct bloodline. Yeah, not a flesh and blood descendant, more of a spiritual. So he was from the same order, the Chishti order. Oh, okay, so got, it, got, it, got it, got it, got yeah. it, got it, got it. So they have that silsila which traces back to, okay. um, um, you know, and in fact, like Nizamuddin goes back even further. Um, there's also, um, I mean, there are few in Delhi, but yeah, I mean, it's it's more of a spiritual lineage. It's not a, it's not a phys uh, biological one. Right, right, right. Okay, so from there we have Dakni. So I, I believe the word Dakni, at, even in the 14th century, would not have existed. So essentially, we had uh, the Helvi mixing with the first with Marathi and then with Kannada under the Bahamani Empire. So what happens from here? And uh, could you tell us from here? Can you just you know spell it out as to the, how Dakni was created? and uh, how it grew at, as a literary language. And so the last part, which is the most important part for us, is how 
today we inherited the spoken language of dakni without actually realizing what it is we'll let karthik explain to us uh the growth of dakni from the from 1347 or from the bahamani empire onwards which is actually very important because that is also what connects it to hyderabad under the qutubshahi empire or the golconda golconda kings who founded hyderabad so yeah so i can't can please continue so um you know um this is a point that i mentioned earlier but i um you know i'm going to stress it again uh the point that um you know like dakni's history is intimately tied to the political history of the region and um just as the bahamanis broke with delhi you know like this also marked like um just as um you know they started developing their own political institutions and what not um you could see i mean like you find that dakni also started taking on its own uh trajectory right because uh, it it was spoken in this kingdom and uh, in its cities and what not and uh, as i mentioned as well like um with with the um, communities uh becoming muslims and they would invariably come in contact with this language right uh, at the same time what happened was um uh I, I, again like as i mentioned earlier there was this growth of vernacular literature across um you know like across india right and uh, even in the deccan i mean in fact in the deccan it had happened earlier than elsewhere in, i mean like uh, further north right what happens is under the bahmanis towards uh, the end of their rule in fact uh, there is this very singular work of literature which has no parallel so it's called kadam rao kadam rao it's this work of uh it's this epic poem which is composed in bidar which you know becomes the capital of the bahmanis after gulbarga and it is entirely in dakni but it's also in a very sanskritized dakni like um you know the dakni scholars i've spoken to tell me that um in order to read kadam rao padam rao you actually need familiarity with sanskrit and like you know you need like a sanskrit dictionary and stuff cuz yeah <laughs> this is so what, so what does that mean exactly so it's 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 very strange it's a very esoteric um and a very eclectic work because the work itself is it's it's a spiritual work and it um it it sort of defies categorization like um first off even though like this was written in dakni and it was evidently commissioned by one of the sultans though the work itself is not uh islamic or like persianate in nature like in, uh, in character so like um uh, in fact the whole thing is about like yoga and like some like uh, yoga Seriously? as in like, the magical as in not the ma- yoga, yoga as in uh exercise yoga but you know like magic yoga i guess you so know? you're saying that kadam rao padam rao which is considered to be one of uh-huh. or the earliest work of written literature in dakni is actually yes. something that is heavily sanskritized uh and is more spiritual in nature instead of some instead of the typical literary poetry or things that we read absolutely it's 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 uh it's more sanskritized and not just in language even in themes like it touches upon like um yoga i mean those again like magical yoga and like um none of the characters for example have persian names they all have uh not even sanskrit names they have dakni names like kadam rao uh kadam the, the very name kadam is from the sanskrit word kadamba which is a type of uh tree right so it's <laughs> and, and rao is obviously it's from raja so Uh, and padam is from padma so like you know you have like these names and these elements that are actually from uh, a very local by local i mean like an indic um base and um, in fact i uh, i this is like i said it's still uh, the 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 work still defies categorization but um, i've heard like from experts on how like um, the the 
the book even reflects like it 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 reflects like spiritual influence from the natha yoga tradition nath panthi tradition of north india which was in fact centered in what is now like uh, gorakhpur so like further much further north then so there's also this uh, yeah so there are also these spiritual connections that are uh, th- this has not really been studied much and uh, it's a very fascinating text and like yeah it's just full of i don't know it has all these diverse influences and also it's like the only dakni text from the bahmani period and after that like before that there's nothing and like after that there's nothing from the bahmani period oh really yeah because the bahmani empire itself uh kingdom whatever it it um falls it splits shortly after yeah of course so, that splits about but, 14 uh, to 15 18 is when it get completely gets done yeah so it's around uh, this is the late 15, uh, 1400s kadambara padambara and um, after that we don't yeah we don't really see anything but that also doesn't i mean that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't anything it just means we haven't found anything there's like you know manuscripts uh it, it all depends on us finding them and uh, in in fact like i mean there's there's a story about this as well i'll get to it later but uh, it's yeah so we haven't found anything and uh, kadambara padambara by itself does have i mean the the verse itself is supposed to be relatively refined which also points to um the existence of a tradition before it because like obviously if there's no tradition you're not going to have like a very refined work of literature from the get go right you need like a you need something to build upon uh which brings me to my next point uh, we don't have any records of literature in dakni before kadambara padambara but we do have snatches like samples of dakni in the sufi um uh, tazkiras which are basically like um you know like sufi um uh what's the word like anthologies of sorts where they write you know about their teachings and and stuff like that and uh, you you have like random again like these are all in persian but you have snippets of dakni like words or phrases in dakni that are incorporated in so for example a sufi might say oh this is like a this is a prayer that people use and he might have like three four words in dakni so you have these like fragmentary snippets of dakni before that but again this the, uh, um these are just like these are persian records and like these are like observations of how people are speaking or using dakni so evidently uh, it was used can i say that even before it became a full fledged literary language dakni was um, had, was similar to what it is today uh, a very localized form of language um yeah i mean like it was definitely spoken as a community language Uh, among a certain like among certain communities and it was used as uh, you know as we've seen for like uh, sufi preaching and teaching and what not and you know like prayers and what not so it it was used and like there would have been some traditions like um uh, we can't uh, obviously um uh, speak about them for, uh, with any certainty but we do have these fragmentary glimpses into like pre-literary dakni all right but, uh, yeah but i uh, i don't think those have been studied much either and like i'm not surprised because we don't have much to begin with right okay for people listening um, to give you all context after the the bahmani empire basically collapses from around 1500 where the governors essentially end up becoming independent kings so you have the uh, adil shahi of bijapur you have the nizam shahis of ahmednagar which is basically gujarat maharashtra you have the imad shahis in berar which is essentially uh, vidarbha in maharashtra today 
and then you have the golconda qutub shahis of golconda which is basically the golconda kings who founded hyderabad so golconda hyderabad was founded later 1591 but the kingdom of golconda in hyderabad was founded in 1518 that was the last so the founder of the golconda kingdom was sultan kuli who was the last bahamani governor who uh, declared himself as a king so yeah just just that i just wanted to put this before we went forward so yeah karthik so tell me what what happened from here onwards so uh, it's it's um something very interesting happened so like um we, you know as we've established um dakni um developed in a very local setting right and as in like in this deccan like um, deccan based setting where it incorporated like these local um, themes and like you know like linguistic elements cultural elements what not now what happens is with uh, bahmani power or rather yeah like central control sort of like disintegrating splintering as it were um you also see dakni like starting to diverge and like regional variants of dakni and you know like regional varieties emerge and um, in different regions it starts uh incorporating more influences from different local languages right and right. uh what also happens is uh, initially these new uh, sultanates they don't use dakni for any literary purposes oh okay yeah it's it's just persian and um, in fact like uh, a lot of these sultanates for example golconda sultanate uh, patronized telugu right uh, quite um, um, i'm i'm sure like you would like um, you're familiar with this like they 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 uh, they were very uh, enthusiastic patrons of telugu and there's even like this anecdote of one of the sultans like you know uh, floating on waves of bliss um this was oh, ibrahim, okay. ibrahim um kolkotup shah like floating on waves of bliss listening to the uh, telugu mahabharata right okay so okay. Uh, yeah so it, it was a very interesting cultural milieu where it's very different from our idea of like um this adherence to a persianate cultural and literary um mold right you know they they freely read uh and not just read they enjoyed telugu and like kannada and like marathi and you know right. these yeah these literatures and um uh there's there's also evidence that bijapur was um actually quite even though like most of its realm was in the kannada region they um you know like there's there's evidence showing that um bijapur had ties to like marathi uh, bhakti and what not so um because the center of marathi um bhakti um spirituality uh, is pandharpur which is not actually far it's it's very close to bijapur so yeah anyway these these are all like um tangents but the the uh, the, the general idea i'm trying to convey is that um there was there was like a lot of cross cultural exchange and you know like these these kingdoms are increasingly becoming locally uh, rooted in local traditions right so at this point i'll also bring up an important political uh idea that emerged right so at the courts of the deccan sultanates there were generally speaking there were two political factions uh in, in like you know in modern academic literature they're called the afaqis and the dakni's right and because you know dakin uh dakni as a word just means of the deccan it means um, someone who's from the dakkan and dakkan is right in right in um, you know yeah so um you had the dakhnis who were the local elites who were born and uh, brought up uh, locally 
and um, you know like who are either local converts or descendants of uh, migrants from delhi like right. we're talking about from the tughlaq period in the next episode we will continue this discussion with kartik about dakhni thank you all for listening to another episode of beyond charminar you can also listen to all the episodes on our website sunoindia.in or on any other podcast app of your choice so you know, india's shows are all available also on spotify for example uh, as independent producers we rely on you our listeners to support us so please visit the contribute page also on our website and help in any way that you can uh, we really appreciate it so thank you